Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Every big idea or organization has to get its start somewhere and the National Weather Service is no exception. More than 150 years ago, Congress established the U.S. Weather Bureau in 1870, which would go on to eventually become the National Weather Service we know today. Our guest today dug into the life of the man who could become known as the father of the National Weather Service. Sean Potter is the author of Too Near for Dreams, the story of Cleveland Abbey, America's first weather forecaster. We'll discuss Abbey's life and passion, as well as what motivated Sean to dive into the world of writing, in addition to being a meteorologist. Sean, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Marshall. Thank you. We have a standard MO that we do for every guest that comes on the show. How'd you become a weather geek? Oh boy, um, I, everybody's got a story to tell and it usually re, uh, relates to a significant weather event from that person's childhood and I am uh, no exception. I grew up in central Minnesota, just uh, west of St. Cloud, which is actually where I uh, went to uh, undergraduate school, got my bachelor's in meteorology from St. Cloud State University. And long before that, long before they even had a program in meteorology at St. Cloud State, um, I started becoming fascinated in, well, first in science, in science in general. I remember even at a very young age, going to a parent-teacher conference, maybe in like second grade, and uh, the teacher uh, asked me, Sean, do you still want to be a scientist when you grow up? And, and, uh, and my mom was there with me, and I, I attribute a lot of that to her because she worked uh, in the medical field, and she was very interested in science, got her degree in general science, um, uh, back in, uh, in when she went to college and, um, and she always fostered this, this love and interest in science in me. Uh, so I, I always attribute that side of, uh, of, of, you know, what I have in terms of, uh, my, my gifts to her and, and then anything literary, uh, I, I give to my, uh, tribute to my dad because he was an English instructor and, uh, had a love for literature. Both my parents are very well-rounded, but I think that was a good combination. So getting back to your question, Marshall, um, I was always fascinated by the weather though. And I, and I think it really started to, uh, my focus really started to, uh, center around meteorology back in, let's see, I think it was 1986. Uh, there was a tornado just outside of the Twin Cities, just, uh, and I grew up about 70 miles north, northwest of, of Minneapolis. It was the, I think it's, it's called the Brooklyn Park Tornado, and it, it affected that suburb and Fridley and some other northern suburbs of, of the Twin Cities. And Marshall, you probably know uh, Paul Douglas. Uh, I do, the, Yes, the, uh, <laughs> the, the famed uh, weathercaster, uh, broadcast meteorologist who really made a name for himself in the Twin Cities market. I did a brief stint in Chicago, came back to the Twin Cities, and then, as he likes to put it, uh, became a serial entrepreneur and is, uh, is uh, um, credited with uh, founding a number of companies, including Weather Nation, originally. And uh, Paul was uh, one of the broadcast meteorologists on the NBC affiliate at the time in Minneapolis. And I remember, I, I, I don't want to uh, commit myself to the date, I think it was in early July of, of 86, 
and I was I was home watching some some TV show, uh, and uh, and then as it was ending, just before the five o'clock news came on, um, all of the the channels started reporting about a funnel cloud sighting in one of these northern Twin Cities suburbs, and and they all some of them had like their their camera on top of the building, the roof of their building, pointing at it and everything. All of the local stations covered it, but but Paul's station, which I think had just changed their call letters at the time to, to CARE, K-A-R-E, which is still known as the Channel 11 NBC affiliate, they did wall-to-wall coverage that was unlike any anybody had ever done before because they just, be, from the, uh, due to sheer luck, uh, were fortunate enough to have their uh, station's helicopter coming back from assignment, and it happened to spot the tornado as it was over a uh, mostly wooded area. It was a nature center, as I, as I recall. And for the entire length of the broadcast, it was, it was literally made for TV or, you know, virtually made for TV in that uh, for the entire length of the, the newscast, they were, it was, it was a combination of, um, of Paul delivering um, the latest bulletins from the weather service uh, and and then talking to Max Mesner, I still remember the, the pilot's name who gained, gained a lot of local fame uh, and the photographer, I don't remember his name, but but who was capturing these live images of the tornado through its various phases. It sometimes became a, a condensation funnel. It seemed to disappear. You could see it hitting high tension power lines, ripping up trees. And it was incredible. And I remember watching this and just being awestruck. And what I did, Marshall, is I took my parents' VCR, which again, this is 1986. I think they had just recently bought the very first VCR, took a, a video blank video cassette, popped it in, hit record, and I watched that tape over and over and over again. And, and wow. um, later on in high school, I, I continued to become interested in, in meteorology through earth science, which you know everybody had to take in ninth grade. My earth science teacher, Mr. Johnson, Don Johnson, uh, a wonderful man, uh, Later, also helped foster that interest because he did uh, offer an elective course. I think it was my maybe my senior year uh, in meteorology. Got my first taste of um, adiabatic charts and so forth. And I remember giving a talk about that that tornado and showing some of the clips. and And I understand that some of the video was actually used by weather service uh, uh, training groups to help train forecasters because they'd never received or never seen footage like this before. This was before the days of the, the storm chasers with their ubiquitous, you know, GoPros and, and DSLRs and, uh, you know, cell phones and wireless technology. This was really uh, unprecedented. And so that really sealed the deal. And then, I was, like I said, I was fortunate enough that as, I, as the interest in, in meteorology started to uh, continue to, uh, to grow, that the university just uh, six miles away at St. Cloud State, where I was likely going to go anyway, uh, founded its uh, its meteorology program, which is still the only four-year bachelor's uh, program in meteorology in the state of Minnesota. So that's, yeah. that's really how I got started. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's interesting. You know, there, there were there were shades of uh, what I hear from a lot of folks in our field, but then there's some really unique aspects that you shared as well. Talking with Sean Potter, who's the author of Two Near for Dreams. Sean has a, as you heard, a, a master's in uh, geography and atmospheric sciences program at the in, in Indiana University, Bloomington, a bachelor's in meteorology and German at St. Cloud State University. Uh, he's a media relations, media relations specialist at NASA. He's also a certified consulting meteorologist, uh, a, a contributing editor of WeatherWise magazine and a communication specialist at NOAA before that. And he was a weather producer at ABC's Good Morning America for some time, too. So you can see he has a broad range of 
of background and experience. And you forgot the part about me working on air myself back in the day in uh, Yuma, well, you Arizona. Know, that's interesting. We didn't quite <laughs> capture that in our production notes, uh, but what, where, where did you work on air? It was a, a station, it was KYMA TV, it was the NBC affiliate in Yuma, Arizona, which isn't, I like to say, is was not the, the very bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, market, <laughs> you know, DMA, the, um, the market size. Uh, I think it was 176 at the time, and maybe there's about 190, 200 or so. But, you know, um, what happened there is, so, you know, kind of fast forward, I, I was in St. Cloud, at St. Cloud State pursuing my uh, bachelor's in meteorology and German, as you mentioned, I, I uh, did, neglected to uh, to mention that as well, which was interesting because uh, uh, when I told people that I was double majoring in meteorology and German, they'd always kind of give me this kind of, you know, tilt their head and give me this strange look and think, well, are you planning to give the weather on some sort of German weather channel. Uh, I don't really, doesn't really compute because everybody, as you know, when you tell them you're a meteorology major, they just assume you're going to go into broadcasting. Well, on TV, yeah. What channel are you on? <laughs> exactly. And then when you say German as well as that, which, which came because, I mean, you know, and again, I be true to the, my, my father who, um, who had developed an interest in German, not that he had any heritage, but he was really interested in that when he was in grad school, had, had tried uh, uh, even at a young age to to foster an interest in my sister and me. It really took uh, with me and um, and I, I studied abroad at Saint through a program that Saint Cloud State had at the time in a, a city called Ingolstadt in um, Bavaria, which is actually where Audi is headquartered. It's about an hour north of, of Munich. Uh, lived with a host family there, with who I'm still in touch with. It was an amazing experience. And when I came back, I was only three. I, I had to take these three one credit courses that were required for all uh, German majors to be able to qualify for a major, I was already pursuing meteorology. And I thought, well, what the heck, why don't I just, you know, I'll, I'll tack on the German major as well. And, and initially I was interested in, um, when I applied for grad school in Indiana, a few years later, I was, I was thinking, how could I combine the two? And I was thinking about, uh, you know, places like the WMO or maybe doing some, something at, uh, uh some climate center or the Deutsche Wetterdienst in, um, in, in Germany, that didn't uh, necessarily pan out, but it is interesting how sometimes the, the German does come into play uh, occasionally, including with the book, because, uh, and we'll get, I know, maybe dive into oh, that a little bit sure. in, in a minute, but, uh, you know, uh, and I don't want to, to, you know, jump too fast forward in, into the, the story of Cleveland Abbey, but, uh, but there was a period in his life when he was uh, living and working in, uh, in, in Russia, just south of St. Petersburg at an observatory in a place called Polkova, which still exists today, and I've actually... Uh, uh, corresponded with some folks there to, and researching the book. Uh, it was run at the time, the observatory was run by uh, uh, some, uh, basically a dynasty of, of astronomers with the last name Struve, S-T-R-U-V-E, who were German Prussian. They were Prussian Germans, they were we called. It was the, um, that area that they came from. Uh, and, uh, but they, they ran the observatory of one father, uh, uh, Wilhelm, who passed away just before uh, Cleveland Abbey arrived there. And then his son, Otto Struve, was the director. And of course, German was their, uh, their, their, their language um, that they used. And, and so Abbey you know, knew some of that and learned it. And he became close friends with, uh, with uh, one of the, uh, the younger members of that family. And there was correspondence uh, between the two of them in German that are part of the Cleveland Abbey papers at the Library of Congress, um, upon which I, I relied very heavily in writing the book. And so, uh, so and I, I won't say that I, I translated and went through every single one of them, but there were a few where I, I you know, key 
um, documents or um, pieces of correspondence that I did, you know, sit down and try to see what, what exactly they were saying. So it's interesting because my daughter actually is a junior in high school and she's in German four right now and was supposed to visit Germany. Uh, but, yeah, wonderful. I'll pass that along. <laughs> is that good? Uh, before we really dive into the book though, a curious question, is there something in meteorology career wise that you haven't done that you've always wanted to? <laughs> well, I mentioned working, you know, going to the WMO in Geneva. Uh, uh, boy, you, you know, that's a good question, uh, Marshall. I mean, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to sit here and try to say that I'm, I'm ever going to be the, the, you know, a great research meteorologist. You know, I didn't go on for, for a doctorate. There are many people much, much better at the calculus and, and differential equations than, um, th than I ever was or will be. Um, but I, I do think I've had a pretty fulfilling career thus far. And I, and I, you know, I getting back to the broadcasting, that was something that I, I had initially planned on when I set out to, um, to major in meteorology uh, and it just so happened that, you know, that uh, continued to, that interest continued to grow. I was very interested, um, had in public speaking, I had um, been on the speech team in high school, actually went and represented my school at the state tournament uh, in a category called Great Speeches. I, I wrote a speech uh, about a speech uh, that uh, Robert F. Kennedy gave the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And uh, there's a famous speech that, that he gave uh, later that um uh, that day. Uh, oh, no, this is, uh, yeah, there was a speech that he gave earlier. Um, I don't know if you know the story that uh, that RFK was actually uh, en route to, I believe it was um, uh, Indianapolis that um, where, when, when King was, when he got word that King was assassinated, I think he actually got word after he landed. And he made an impromptu speech to a group of African-American, I want to say they were garbage uh, uh, collectors in Indianapolis that night that was impromptu and, and his advisors advised him not to talk about this and said, you know, don't talk about this, you know, because it's going to incite them. There's going to be riots and everything. And as you may well know, there were riots throughout the United States that night. Uh, and Indianapolis was one of the cities that did not go up in flames. And I think in large part because of, of, of uh, Kennedy's talk. And then the next day, his speechwriters had a chance to, uh, to be a little more, uh, put some prose to uh, to paper, and uh, and and wrote him a very eloquent speech that he gave at the uh, city club, a city club luncheon in Cleveland, and it was called "A Time of Shame and Sorrow," and it was a very powerful speech. Uh, my coach at the time had um, uh, brought it to me at the beginning of my senior year on the speech team and said, "I, I want you to." to do a speech about analyzing the speech and giving some excerpts of it. And I did and um, ended up going to the state tournament. And, and so I think really going into the decision to go into broadcasting later on was kind of a, a marriage of, of that interest and, and maybe talent, if you will. And uh, with my, um, uh, my background in meteorology. Um, so I, I, you know, I was really glad and fortunate to be able to have that experience. I didn't end up pursuing a career uh, in broadcasting as I maybe thought I would at the time, but I've done a number of things that I think have given me a, maybe a more fulfilling career in terms of the, uh, the breadth of what I've been able to uh, accomplish. Uh, going back to Indiana to finish up my master's degree shortly after my, my time in, in Yuma on air, and uh, that was in um, more applied climatology, and that led to uh, a position at one of the regional climate centers, the Southeast Regional Climate Center, which at the, is now in uh, North Carolina, 
uh, I believe at NC State, and at the time no, it was in North Carolina, actually. Oh, the University of Thank you. Okay, so at the time when I worked there, it was actually in South Carolina at uh, in Columbia. At it was housed in the uh, in the Department of Natural Resources. And, and I worked there for a couple of years and it was a great experience because that led to some, um, uh, some, some friendships, relationships, mentorships, if you will. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, and I know, you know, and, uh, Matt Parker, whom we all, um, we lost, uh, very prematurely a couple of years ago, um, became a good friend and he helped inspire me and really, really pushed me to get my CCM, my Certified Consulting Meteorologist uh, certification. I'd gotten the seal of approval back a few years earlier when I was in Yuma. And I remember seeing, you know, information on, you know, the AMS website at the time about the CCM and thinking, oh yeah, well, that, that's not for me. That's for, that's for these hardcore researchers, the people with the PhDs, the people who are really. Who, who uh, by the way, rarely actually get the CCM. Exactly. Um, nor do people in the weather service, which I know, um, you know, uh, those who do, and I, you know, I necessarily wouldn't necessarily name names, but I know a few who during their career, found it useful to go and get the CCM. And not only has it maybe helped them later in retirement if they went into consulting, um, but I think it's the, the AMS would like to see more people in, um, in the public sector, you know, see the value of it, that it's not just, okay, well, I've got a job already. I've, I've got the degree. I've, you know, made the cert on this, uh, on this forecaster position. Why do I need this? And it's, it's, you know, for me, it was really more of a personal um fulfillment of personal satisfaction type of thing. But it's amazing, you know, the, the kind of doors that it opened, especially as, um, as I kind of went on to other things in other places, I uh, went to New York and uh, was when I was working for ABC News and, and doing the weather producing for Good Morning America. Um, that was that was a steady gig, but it was it was not full time. It was in the evenings, mostly on the weekends. So I had a lot of free time and to devote to things like writing uh, and consulting and, and to try to build up that presence. And, and it's something that I'm really proud of to have, have that along with the, the then seal of approval, which I've later uh, was able to take the, the test and convert to a CBM certified broadcast meteorologist. Um, even though I, I don't work on air anymore, but you never know. So, so yeah, I've done a lot and um, I, I don't know if there's anything that I, that, that I haven't done more writing, Well, I've got more books to write. So Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm talking with Sean Potter. And I want to pivot now to the book. Uh, you wrote the book, Too Near for Dreams. Uh, Too Near for Dream. Now he's holding up. This is audio podcast only, but I am seeing the, the nice cover of the book there. And it's a book about Cleveland Abbey. And I think some people may not really know outside of our field about Cleveland. We certainly within the meteorological community does. You just heard us talking about the American Meteorological Society and shout out to the AMS and the uh, Certified Consulting Meteorology Program uh, and the Certified Broadcast Meteorology Program. These are certifications within our field that like many other places, we have certifications in engineering and various other fields. We have them in meteorology too. But the AMS also has an award named after Cleveland Abbey because he's widely known as the father of the National Weather Service. So, so paint a picture to the listeners for your, your book and who Cleveland, Cleveland Abbey was. Sure. And I'll start by saying he is one of many fathers of the National Weather Service, if you want to use that, uh, that moniker, if, if you will. He, he was not the founder. I know there are, there are some uh, even at, in his time, there, he was misrepresented as being the, the founder or creator of the National Weather Service or what we now know as the National Weather Service. It was originally part of the U.S. Army Signal Service starting in, as you mentioned, 1870 uh, and uh, for the first uh, two decades uh, was uh, a military operation and with, with Abby being one of the few civilian employees. He started in January 1871 when it was less than a year old. Uh, and then in 18, uh, well, in 1890, Congress uh, passed legislation to move it uh, to a civilian agency uh, under the, uh, the Agriculture Department, which it officially started under in um, 1891. Um, but uh, he wasn't the founder. He wasn't, uh, some people say he think he was the first director. He was never the director, the head of the, the Weather Service. He, he wasn't officially the chief meteorologist because that term didn't exist at the time. He was a, assistant to the chief signal officer initially. Uh, the chief signal officer at the time originally being um, General Albert Meyer, who was the, the head of the signal service. And then there were others um, who came after him before it uh, moved into a civilian, become a civilian operation. And at that time, uh, Cleveland Abbey, his title became Professor of Meteorology, which was a, sort of an honorific that was given to some of the, um, the higher level um, civilian meteorologists uh, at, at, the, at the time. But going back a few years before uh, the creation of what we now know as the National Weather Service, as you mentioned, it, it officially came into being uh, with the signing of a joint resolution of Congress by President Ulysses Grant on uh, February 9th, 1870. So we just passed the, the 151st anniversary of that um, of that event, um, that milestone last month and last year, uh, the National Weather Service celebrated its, its sesquicentennial, its 150th anniversary. With, um, and, and Abby obviously had a large role to play uh, once he became a, mem uh, a, a part of the, of the nation's weather service in helping establish uh, uh, research and, and um, being a conduit of, of exchanging research information between America and, and, and European 
um, meteorologists and, and weather services. He, he represented the, uh, the United States and the, the Weather Bureau at international conferences. He, uh, he was an advocate for standard time. Here we are less than two weeks from going uh, on to daylight saving time. And um, before it's hard to imagine, I think a lot of people can't even really, don't even really maybe realize that there was a time before we had time zones and it was really difficult, especially if you were traveling, even between say, uh, say New York and Washington, there would be timetables printed and, and, and it's interesting because um, in the research, in the Cleveland Abbey papers of the Library of Congress, there's a collection of his pocket diaries and these small little pocket diaries like, I don't know if pe people don't really have those anymore because we all have our, our cell phones or electronic devices or Google watches, Apple watches. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember my, my dad always had these little calendars at least that he would get at the, at the bank and he, and he loved those. And sometimes he'd give them to me because they, and I love the, the little, uh, tables and, and maps and almanacs that they had at the beginning. Well, they, people really relied on those in Abby's day. And one of the things that they, they included was a, a timetable. So you could convert if it was noon, say in, in, um, New York, what the, the offset in time would be because in Washington DC, many, like many cities, they observe solar noon. And as you know, the, you know, unless you're on the same meridian, uh, the same point of, um, of longitude, you're not going to, uh, same line of longitude, you're not going to have noon at the, at the same, um, at the same time in at different locations. So anyway, um, getting back to, um, to Abby's role though. Uh, so he did a lot once he started, the, it was joined the nation's weather service, the government became a government employee. Prior to that, he was an astronomer. That was his training. That was his background. I mentioned his time at Polkova Observatory, south of St. Petersburg in Russia. He, he had aspirations to become this great astronomer and, and help uh, found and lead and direct an observatory here in the United States, like, one, like the one in Polkova, uh, like the one at Greenwich in the, in the UK. Many people may be familiar, sorry for interrupting, you mentioned Greenwich. I just want to make sure people, we often in meteorology use yeah. Greenwich meantime and that's where we talk about Greenwich. Greenwich meantime GMT Zulu yep exactly UTC and and he was really on a path um, to fulfill that um, that ambition in in the work in the early studies that he did at the University of Michigan under uh, famed astronomer Franz Bruneau then later he did work under Benjamin Gould at um, the United States Coast Survey uh, in Cambridge Massachusetts working on um, longitudinal studies basically using astronomical observations to determine uh, determine longitude of various locations, which was not as easy to do as, as say, latitude at the time. And, um, and then he went to Polkova and, and spent two years there. And he came back and, and he was again on this path because not long after he, he came back from Russia, he went to stay with his family in New York. He was born and raised in, in New York City. Uh, born in 1838, by the way, on a, on a one block long street named Dutch Street in lower Manhattan in the financial district, which is still there today. Um, last time I was there a couple of years ago, they were advertising uh, uh, high-end, uh, high-rise condo buildings uh, right there on the block where Cleveland Abbey was was born. Uh, and, uh, and then after a brief uh, stay with his family, he came to Washington to work at the... Um, at the uh, Naval Observatory, and then he received an invitation to go to Cincinnati and be the director of the Cincinnati Observatory, which was a, uh, a game-changing uh, 
a pivotal moment in his in his life. And the Cincinnati Observatory is still there. It's in a different, slightly different location than it was from uh, Abby's time. Um, I went there, met the, the wonderful people who are there um, uh, today, um, helping um, not only carry on his his legacy, but also um, actually as a working observatory and doing a lot of. of Outreach and uh, and work. The, their um, they have an astronomer, Dean Regas, who is who does incredible outreach work uh, for the public uh, with podcasts and lectures and so forth on on modern day astronomy. Um, but they're very proud of Cleveland Abbey there, and they had some some um, some uh, good collection of some of his notes and papers. And uh, while he was there as the director of the Cincinnati Observatory, starting in I think it was May of 1868, and he was. Um, he was there essentially until right before the time he joined um, the signal service at uh, General Myers' um, uh, request, invitation, again in uh, early 1871. He, the observatory in Cincinnati that he inherited was in a state of disrepair, um, both physically, there were buildings that were dilapidated, starting to fall apart, it, it, um, and, and also in terms of, um, I guess, institutionally, because he, and he really wanted to revamp the observatory and make it into what he believed would be a, a modern, what a modern American or observatory should be, which involved uh, not only taking astronomical, doing astronomical work, but also uh, things related to magnetism, the longitudinal studies, uh, that I mentioned earlier that he'd worked on in, in Cambridge, but also meteorology. He felt strongly that uh, a good observatory should have a good solid meteorology program. And so he helped create that in Cincinnati with the, the backing of the local chamber of commerce. And, um, and, and he solicited uh, a network of observers and, and, you know, observing the weather was nothing new at the time. Um, people have been doing that even in a, in a very um, synchronized way, if you will, thanks to Joseph Henry at the Smithsonian, who Abby knew personally and, and worked with, and, and the Smithsonian had a network of, of observers around the country. But what Abby did was he took it one step further and, and used working uh, off of um, Joseph Henry's model and then looking at the meteorological uh, work that had been done by others before, before him, such as Elias Loomis, um, um, William Redfield, and, um, and, uh, and others, um, James Espy, who he credited with uh, helping inspire his work. Um, Abby created a, a network of observers uh, in the area, sometimes hundreds of miles away, um, mostly to the um, to the north, south, and west of Cincinnati, and uh, wrote to them and, and got their agreement and cooperation to take simultaneous observations using instruments that he you know he would say this is the type of instruments you should use. These are the way you should take your observations so that everything is is um, is done uh, in the same way at, at each location. And again, most importantly, that it's done simultaneously. The simultaneous observations, as you know, Marshall, are the key because that becomes, you know, today it's, it, they're the ingredients that we plug into our numerical weather uh, prediction models uh, to help forecast weather today. In Abby's time, he relied on those being sent via telegraph early in the morning, and he would go to the telegraph office in, in downtown Cincinnati and wait for these messages to come in from the areas around him, and, and then he would go back to his office and, um, and analyze them and, and basically come up with, and not only map them out, uh, the, the, um, 
the observations, but then come up with a with predictions, which he initially called probabilities. That actually led to his nickname, Old Probabilities, uh, even though he was only 30 years, about 30 years old at the time. And he did this uh, for, um, for a number of months and, um, and actually started publishing his forecasts, again, probabilities in one of the, in the local newspaper and um, became really the first person in America to do that, to, to, to publish, to make and publish regular scientific weather forecasts based on simultaneous observations that were, that were easily utilized by the general public. And so, um, you know, we don't, I, you know, if you want to know all the details about then what happened with uh, the creation of the weather service, I encourage you to read the book. Also, there's an excerpt in, uh, in the current issue of Weatherwise magazine from that chapter, chapter five, the birth of a weather nation. But I'll just, um, I'll just say briefly that, uh, that, you know, Abby sort of laid that groundwork in terms of the ability to, to, to do the forecasting and actually doing it. There were others who had prove, helped prove the, um, the ability of forecast, including one of his uh, prior to that, but didn't actually issue forecasts, and including one of Abby's uh, correspondents and observers in Milwaukee, a man named Increase Latham, who Abby corresponded with, who was very instrumental in actually getting the legislation created and passed to create what we now know as the National Weather Service. Latham uh, um, appealed to a friend of his and who happened to be his representative in Congress, Representative Halbert Payne of Wisconsin, wrote a letter to him after a disastrous uh, season on the Great Lakes where a, a record number of, of ships were lost because of high impact uh, weather events, storms and gales, and said, can't the government do something about this? And um, as um, um, Payne later recalled, he initially thought he was asking him to, uh, if the government could do something about controlling the weather, and then he realized that we, what Latham really meant was, can we do something about uh, collecting observations and issuing warnings? So, uh, so Payne went to work and drafted the legislation, went through the whole process, and I go into great detail in the book uh, about the, the process, the different versions of the bill uh, in the House, and then when you got um, support from the Senate side, it eventually uh, uh, reemerged as a joint resolution, which, as I mentioned, was signed by President Ulysses Grant uh, just over 151 years ago. And, and so, you know, all this stuff was sort of happening at the same time. And then, you know, Cleveland Abbey was starting to get a little despondent with the situation in uh, Cincinnati. He, he didn't have the funding that he really needed to do what he wanted to do with the observatory there. He was ready to, to leave. He was actually going to go join um, an expedition. There were several expeditions that were taking place around that time down in Panama to explore that, that region. And um, that didn't pan out. And, uh, and eventually um, General Meyer came calling while he was, Abby was in New York, invited him to come down to Washington in late December of, um, uh, well, in December of 1870, like I said, just uh, in less than a year after the, the creation of, of the Weather Service and um, made him an offer. And he started the next month and then um, went to work um, trying to take what he had done in Cincinnati and, uh, and basically extrapolate it and expand upon it and create a, a system for doing not just daily, but now try daily, three times a day, weather forecasts 
for not just the region around Cincinnati, but the entire country. And, and, and then he and then eventually others uh, joined him in uh, issuing those. Again, initially they were called probabilities. Later the name changed to indications. And then eventually what we now know today as forecasts. And so that certainly uh, provides a nice context for the, the title of the book. And I'm talking with Sean Potter, who is the author of Two Near for Dreams, the story of Cleveland Abbey, America's first weather forecaster. And so I think he teed up nicely a lot of things that you might want to dig a little deeper in the book to find out about. Where, where can people find the book, Sean? Well, you can go to, you can, it's, it's available in a lot of places. Of course, the AMS, American Meteorological Society's uh, bookstore, they were the publisher of it. Uh, I think it's bookstore.ametsoc.org, and you'll, you'll see it there. I know, uh, I should have checked on this, but I know um, as recently as maybe a month ago, they were offering a, a, a discount for AMS members, um, uh, but I'm not sure if that's still in place. But, you, but AMS members get a discount anyway, but they were offering a discount, I guess, on top of that for, for anyone. Or it's available, it's available really anywhere books are sold. Amazon has it as well. They also have it in Kindle form. Uh, it's distributed by the University of Chicago Press, who uh, AMS has a partnership with for distribution of their, of their books. So you can go to, uh, to their website. And um, yeah, I encourage anybody who wants to learn more about, uh, about Cleveland Abbey, his, his life. It's really, you know, it's an, I think it's a very interesting read. I tried to make it not real technical. I mean, I tried to cover all the, you know, the technical parts and aspects and of, of his life and his career, but I really wanted it to be something that just the average reader without any interest or any background, but hopefully an interest in meteorology would, uh, would, would enjoy, you know, gets into very, some very personal uh, elements of his, of his life and his relationships, his struggle with depression and his uh, relationship with his, his, his family and his mother, a lot of correspondence between him and his mother, especially during the time when he was in Polkova in Russia. That was during the time of the Civil War, and it's interesting. I tried to illustrate some of uh, what they discussed about that, um, that conflict and also President Lincoln's assassination. Abby was in Russia and when he received news and wrote to, uh, in a local English language newspaper from St. Petersburg, wrote to his mother and said, I can't believe it. Um, I, I, I don't even know if this is true and I'll have to wait several days to, to get confirmation of it. And then he, he did. And then he went back in his, in his diary and, and wrote back on the date uh, when Lincoln was, um, was assassinated on this day, this day Lincoln is murdered. Uh, and, and again, I've got actually an illustration in the book of that page of his diary from the, Library of Congress. But again, for people, students of, of meteorology, weather history, if you want to know people who work at the National Weather Service who want to know really in detail how that institution came into being and what it was like in the early, uh, the early decades and sort of the evolution of it into, uh, into becoming really the, the, um, the premier weather uh, agency in the world and at the forefront of modern meteorology around the time of Abby's death in 1916. Um, and then a little bit about the, you know, the legacy that he leaves. You mentioned the, the award, the, the, uh, the award that AMS uh, honors him with every year uh, for uh, service uh, to, um, to the field of meteorology. Yeah. And by the way, shout out to all the, the National Weather Service folks, uh, starting at the head of uh, my good friend and colleague, Louis Ugellini, the director of the Weather Service, longtime director now. 
been all of the people at National Weather Service. I don't think people. He was a recipient of the Cleveland Abbey Award, by the way, as are yeah, he, about yeah. half a dozen former Weather Service directors. He is. And, you know, what I was saying is I just don't think people realize the value that National Weather Service provides to the nation for essentially a $1 billion budget. I think my university's budget is larger than the National Weather Service's budget. Uh, but yet the value in every aspect of our lives, they're there during shutdowns, sequestration, snowstorms, they're, they're serving the nation. So I just wanted to thank all the folks, the National Weather Service. Sean. And, and I would mention, Marshall, as you know, when, when I worked at the, the Weather Service uh, several years ago, you know, in the Office of Communications, we used to we used to really, and they still do, I'm sure, tout that value to the nation. And, and so I think one of the... Uh, uh, the analogies we would use is that if you look at the budget, um, at least for the Weather Service, not the entire um, NOAA's um, operating budget, there are obviously parts of NOAA, NESDIS, the satellite service that is um, that the Weather Service relies upon, and that is makes it much larger. But just to the Weather Service's budget, uh, and then and then uh, do the math to see how much that costs every American on average for every year, and it's something like. For less, I think the, the the analogy we used to use was for less than a cup of uh, of a, your favorite drink at store. We wouldn't say Starbucks, but your favorite specialty uh, drink, coffee drink uh, per day. Uh, they provide this incredible life saving service that uh, every American relies on uh, as part yeah. of their taxpayer dollars. Absolutely. So that was this is, I believe, your first book. Any any other books coming? I would love to. I, uh, I've got some ideas in mind. Um, one thing that I'm, I am working on right now, I, I haven't um, you know, submitted any proposals, um, but I did give a, a talk at the AMS uh, annual meeting uh, that was virtual, as you know, um, this past January. And it, it, uh, on a subject that actually grew out of, out of the book on, on Abby. And in there, I briefly um, introduced the story of a man named William Hallett Green, who was the first African-American graduate of um, City College of New York. And he ultimately became the first African-American to serve in the nation's weather service. And, and this is going back to this is 1884 um, when, he, when he joined. And, uh, and when he initially applied, there were restrictions um, in terms of, um, of black serving in the military. They were um, limited to just a, a, a few regiments in the infantry and cavalry and so basically he was he, his application was summarily denied by the chief signal officer William Hazen at the time and he appealed and he appealed through the help of his uh, college uh, president who was uh, a civil war hero for the union of course and um, and was a personal friend of then secretary of war Robert Todd Lincoln son of president Lincoln and the Secretary of War had over had purview, if you will, over the Weather Service at the time, since it was part of the Army. And Secretary of War Lincoln basically issued an edict to Chief Signal Officer William Hazen, saying, "You know, you this, you can't do this. This is discrimination. There's no reason that a person's skin color should prevent uh, him. I mean, it was all all men at the time from serving in the Weather Service. The, we have members of Congress uh, who are." black we have um you know in other areas of our society and so this is one area where they should be allowed to serve as well and so he was um unfortunately he his he didn't have a, a very long career um he was initially uh after he did his, his um his training at 
uh, Fort Myer in, uh, in Virginia, just across the Potomac River from Washington. He was sent to his first duty station in Pensacola, Florida, Florida which was uh, very uh, racially segregated at the time with a lot of, um, of racial prejudice. And the, um, the head of the, um, the chief observer, if you will, of the, the signal office, um, the weather service office in Pensacola at the time, who of course was a white man, um, did not know that he was, he knew he was getting uh, an assistant and there was even stuff in the press, local press about that and the excitement about it. And then the dismay when both um, his superior and the local community found out that he was a black man. And um, I won't tell you the things that, 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 that were written about him. Uh, there was one article in a local newspaper that used the N-word, I think a total of four times, twice referring to, to Green directly. And, uh, and his, uh, his superior tried to get him removed. Um, the, Hazen, the chief signal officer, head of the weather service at the time, actually, instead of that, removed the, the superior, called, recalled him to Washington, was about to court-martial him, probably because he didn't want any more trouble with, with uh, Secretary of War Lincoln. And, uh, and, and that, that man, um, Sergeant McGarren, I think was his name, was able to negotiate uh, uh, Nagel's way, all that, and get a demotion to a private, and then went off to some other duty stations, leaving William Halleck Green in charge of the station in Pensacola, but, um, but it was just, there was too much r racial tension there at the time, and the, the signal service moved him, uh, relocated him to Rochester, New York, where they thought he'd be, um, you know, have less um, less trouble, and for a while it seemed like he did. But even there, his um, his white superior started to bring charges against him of everything from gambling to you know dereliction of duty and so forth. And he was uh, ultimately discharged in um, uh, 1887. So it was just I think under three years that he served. But this was a very interesting story, and so I really wanted to dig deeper into this and, and thought about, you know, writing something. I, I don't know if there's enough to do an entire book about him, but I, but I started writing and started digging into it, and then I started noticing more stories and more recent stories going into the 20th century about African Americans serving in the nation's weather service and, um, and the struggles that they had and the few cases where people were able to, um, to enjoy um, lengthy, decades-long careers. Um, in, in the 19-teens, there were only two professional, and, and by professional, I mean they were, um, they were observers. They weren't, you know, they weren't even classified as meteorologists at the time across the country in the Weather Bureau. And, and so, basically, I'm, I'm, I continue to research that, and I've, I'm looking at, you know, possibly doing something about, uh, about the history of diversity and inclusion in the nation's weather service, which is a very timely topic, as you know, because we've had presidential forums and all kinds of symposia and, and discussions, including at the AMS meeting in January, talking about this, the AMS has done uh, incredible amount of work, especially in the past year, especially during all the racial reckoning that has taken place since the killing of George Floyd uh, almost a year ago, and um, is really trying to, I think, right some wrongs and also just um, create a more inclusive um, create a more inclusive society, if you will, as is uh, our institutions like the National Weather Service. And so there's a lot to be said about what's happening now, but I think there's a really a, a much untold story about how we got to this point. And that's something that I'm really digging into and would love to be able to share. And I 
think we are going to have to end it there, but I, I am opening an in invitation to you because my colleague John Knox and I actually had a new class commissioned at the University of Georgia called Hidden Figures of Atmospheric Sciences. And uh, we're going to dive into some of these areas. And I'd love to have you come in and guest lecture via Zoom on that very story you just told. I would me. love to do that, Marshall. Yeah, so we, we have to end it here. But before I do, I've got to get to the geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Jason Prentice. He lives out in Kansas, and his favorite weather has long been severe weather and tornadoes. He's even been out tornado chasing and saw over a dozen tornadoes back in May of 2008. He also loves to analyze and explain weather and its phenomena to others. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. It's been a pleasure. And go, Jason. That's an amazing uh, story. And I'm envious that he's actually seen some tornadoes, which I haven't yet. So I need to go do some storm chasing. Well, congratulations to Jason. And thanks to everyone that listens. And be sure if, if you know someone that you think is a deserving Geek of the Week, uh, make sure to nominate them there on our Twitter page. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.